today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today on the show, an MPP has left the Ontario PCs to sit as an independent. Doug Ford says that if Mayor Eisenberger wants the LRT, then he'll get the LRT. And Rana Ambrose joins me to talk about why incoming judges should receive sexual assault training. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Breaking news today, as you heard on CHML just a little while ago, MPP Amanda Simard is leaving the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party caucus to sit as an independent. This comes after she opposed the government's policies when it came to Francophone communities. Uh, she voted against the fall economic statement, which included that, uh, that particular policy. Uh, Premier Doug Ford had this to say. My chief of staff tried to contact Amanda. My principal secretary tried to contact Amanda. Other people in my office tried to contact Amanda. Amanda never returned the calls. She can be part of this. She can be part of it. She chose not to be part of it. Well, uh, what are the ramifications of that? Uh, Alan Carter, of course, uh, co-anchor of Global News at 5.30 and 6, and uh, host of Focus Ontario, uh, seen every weekend on Global, joins us to talk about this morning. Alan, how are you doing today? Well, good morning, uh, Bill. I'm good. However, uh, my French is as bad as it was yesterday, <laughs> so just just be warned. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll try to conduct this one just in, in English then for the time being anyway. Uh, you, this isn't really no surprise, is it? I don't think it is, um, especially when we saw what we saw yesterday uh, with uh, Ms. Samard uh, voting or attempting to vote uh, in favor of an opposition motion. She, uh, the opposition motion to, to basically change these proposed cuts, uh, although in the House she was a little confused, stood up at the wrong time, and her vote didn't actually count. But she did actually vote against uh, the bill itself that would uh, do these changes. And the two main things that she's upset with, is the cancellation of the planned French language university in Ontario and also the elimination of the French language watchdog, which was one of the uh, independent officers of the legislature that the uh, Ford government has decided to eliminate. They're eliminating three altogether, um, the child advocate, environmental commissioner, and also the French language. Um, and, but now what the Ford government has said is they walked back a little bit on that and said, well, we'll still have one. It's just that it won't be an independent office. It'll work under the uh, ombudsman, the main ombudsman. Uh, Ms. Samard said that that didn't go far enough. And then after yesterday, after voting against her own government, it's really not a big surprise to find out that she has gone as an independent. The big question now, though, Bill, is does she remain as an independent or does she join perhaps the Liberals or maybe the NDP? Yeah, who's buying her lunch today? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, John Fraser from the uh, the Liberals, uh, I'm sure he's bringing over a cold cut platter. Skip the dishes, yeah. <laughs> Skip the party while you're at it, too. Uh, this doesn't happen very often. We've seen it happen the odd time in, in federal politics, but you rarely see this in, in especially the Ontario legislature. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't, in, in my years covering it, I haven't seen anything like it in terms of, We've, we have seen, you know, uh, MPPs become independents mostly when they get chucked out of uh, caucus for something that the party said, thinks that, that they shouldn't have done. Uh, but to have, especially this early in a tenure, just, you know, we're only six months in here and six months in and you have uh, an Eastern Ontario MPP just basically saying, I'm leaving the government. I'll go sit, as, I'll go sit on my own. Um, it, and I think that tells you a whole lot about the level of discontent and anger that Ms. Samard must be hearing from her constituents. Remember, her riding in eastern Ontario is 70% francophone. So 
you know, for her to toe the party line here would be difficult for her in that riding. Now, I mean, you know, her political future aside, I mean, how does she, you know, how, how does she go back to her constituency on constituency week and face her, you know, face voters when, you know, the government has done something that has uh, angered so many Francophones in this province. Well, and it's another example, isn't it, Alan, of uh, a policy that was enacted that was never talked about during the, pan- the campaign. Uh, so this is catching everybody by surprise. It is, and, I, you know, I'm so confused by why the Ford government put this, threw this all into the fall economic uh, statement. For example, you'll recall that a few weeks back, before the fall economic statement, they announced that they were canceling a number of university expansions. Yeah. So why did they not just, if they had put the French university thing in there with that announcement, it would have seemed less like an attack on francophones and more along the lines of, well, we're canceling all of these universities. And then the, 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 uh, the French language services ombudsman that doesn't save them any money. They can't claim that's going to cost. They can't justify it by saying, well, it's going to save us a million dollars on the bottom line. So then the question becomes, well, why would you do it? Why would you, why would you step into this hornet's nest? Well, I don't know that they've answered that uh, to anybody's satisfaction at this stage because, I mean, the immediate reaction that we heard, and I'm sure, yeah, I know you guys talked about it on, on the news, it's, it almost seems vindictive. Like you say, there's no cost saving per se here. There isn't, and and here is a, a situation where Mr. Ford has somewhat, the government has seems to have somewhat unwittingly just wandered into a national debate about bilingualism, you know, and so now opens himself up to all kinds of criticism from not just Quebec, but federal government and, you know, the Francophone community in Ontario. And there are a lot of people that are, you know, that have wondered about Mr. Ford's perhaps federal ambitions. He, he loves to wade into what are traditionally federal matters. And now he's got this tag to him, which is that he's anti-French. I mean, which Mr. Ford, you know, tried to say yesterday, that's not true. In fact, uh, the premier promising yesterday that he's going to learn French, which I'm excited for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because I, I, I don't know if you remember grade 10 French. I, I don't. Uh, but I do recall that conjugating verbs is hard. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of muddled through it for the first couple of years. And uh, it was about a grade 11 when they said, okay, we're going to speak French in the classroom. I think I lasted about 10 minutes. I went down to the office and said, <laughs> I'm changing options, okay? So that, that was it for me, Alan. I didn't go much further than that. Uh, is, so Doug Ford's, is this going to be uh, the John Diefenbaker form of uh, French? Is that what he's going to be speaking? <laughs> I cannot wait. To see the look on uh, francophone faces when uh, Mr. Ford, as he said, I'm going to come out here and speak French and shock all of you. So, uh, <laughs> well, he will do uh, that. There's, yeah, there's, a, there's yeah. a campaign promise I know he'll keep. Uh, <laughs> is, is this a sign of something else, though? You've heard the rumblings over the last four or five days, Alan, that there there is discontent in the Tory caucus. And uh, Amanda Smart is really uh, j- just one example of that. Now, nobody seems to want to confirm or deny that. Obviously, the Premier is, is resentful every time somebody's brought it up. But, I mean, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. That's what some people are saying. Well, sure. And, you know, we've heard a lot of rumblings and, and uh, anger within uh, the PC caucus about, you know, the direction of the government and the top-down sort of uh, style, especially the style of uh, Mr. Ford's chief of staff, uh, Dean French. However, I have yet to see 
any inklings of anybody else actually bolting. I mean, it may happen, but Miss Simard has a, a, a particular axe to grind here. She has an issue that she can point to and say, this is an issue you didn't talk about. This is an issue that impacts my uh, constituents. The government did not consult her at all. She's the only francophone in, you know, riding representative in the caucus. And they didn't talk to her at all before they made this announcement. So she has a legitimate beef. The other ones, if there are any, if, they, if there are any other MPPs considering bolting, on what basis will they bolt? The fact that they don't like the way the government is being run? I, there's not an issue there yet that uh, their constituents, like let's say if you were an MPP for Mississauga somewhere, I mean, your constituents aren't going to say, well, wait a second. Yeah, I agree. You sh- Even though we all overwhelmingly voted for the progressive conservatives, uh, you shouldn't be in there because of you don't like the way they're treating you. I think that's a lot. That's a much, much tougher sell to a constituency. Yeah, and if you're hearing those rumors, I mean, we don't know if these are rookie MPPs uh, that maybe just aren't used to, to party politics. I mean, let's face it, all parties t- want to whip their members. I get that. But you've heard some of these other rumors again, and these are spe- people that are speaking you know, with anonymity, uh, that they, they actually get chastised if they don't jump to their feet and applaud as soon as a minister says something that they're supposed to applaud. And, uh, they're not supposed to talk if they're not asked to talk and, and things of this nature. But that's you're right, that's that's really party discipline. And and I don't know if any constituents are going to say, yeah, if, if you're not comfortable, by all means, jump. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, and, and could you imagine a constituent, like a, an MPP actually crossing the floor and going to the liberals, which is what the, some of the speculation was? I mean, you know, the liberals were decimated and people, you know, people gave them only seven seats for a reason because the province was upset with Kathleen Wynne and 15 years of liberal rule. And so six months into a new tenure, you're going to cross the floor and join the enemy. That is that is a tough road. Hold. Keep in mind, if you're an MPP, what are you hoping to do in three and a half years? You're hoping to win again. Oh, sure. And repeat. So if you're considering your political future, you're going to have to weigh that. Ms. Simard has obviously weighed her political future and realized that there is no future for her in a party that has made cuts to francophone services when she represents a 70% francophone riding. The only one I can think of, just as you and I are having this discussion, was Tony Skarika did the same thing in the Harris government. Uh, uh, didn't step aside. He just, I think he actually st- stepped down uh, because of the amalgamation issue. He, again, said the leader said one thing and, and did something else. And uh, uh, he was representing Flamborough at the time. And uh, he obviously it was a principled idea. And I, I actually got a lot of positive feedback from his, uh, his constituents as a result of that. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to Amanda Samard with her constituents. But I wanted to ask you something else, just on a procedural what happens here to independence? I mean, she's not going to obviously be a member of the caucus, but she has to move to another bench, I would imagine, does she not? Yeah, she'll have to move across the floor to join the seven other, or rather eight other independents, the seven liberals uh, and one Green Party, even though those, obviously those have party affiliation. But according to the rules within the legislature, they are considered to be independents. Because you're an independent, and if you're shy of eight, which is the current uh, the current measure for official party status, and as you know, the government is looking to up that to twelve. And there's many people that say it's not coincidental that that's happening at a time when they already knew that they had some trouble within their own caucus, and now 
you have an independent going over there and, you know, possibly could she join the Liberals? If she does, well, temporarily they might have official party status. But remember the bill that Ms. Samard voted against that contains these measures on the French language services also contains this change in official party status as well. Well, and, and she doesn't get all the resources that she would as a member of the governing party now either, does she? Office staff, finances, things of this nature. I know I remember talking with Garth Turner when he fell into a, a bad way with Stephen Harper just after the Harper government got elected, and uh, he got booted out of caucus. And, and he told me, he says, yeah, I had a new office right beside the boiler room in the basement uh, and, you know, with no windows, no nothing, and no staff to speak of. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a come down, isn't it? Well, absolutely it will be. I mean, and, and, you know, there will be no, you know, there'll be no standing in the house. I mean, she doesn't get a question. She, like you say, no staff, no, you know, she won't have uh, an assistant anymore. Like she, up until today, was the um, deputy minister of the parliamentary assistant for Francophone Affairs, reporting to uh, working with Caroline Mulroney. Well, it's, obviously she's not doing that anymore. And they, they get paid for every one of those uh, positions they hold, do they not? I mean, it, it, there's That's a base bad. salary, so she's, she's actually going to get a reduction in pay as a result of this. So you, you, you don't make these decisions lightly. Well, absolutely you don't. You don't, I, I won't say cross the floor, but you don't walk across the floor to sit by yourself away from a party, especially not a party with the top-down discipline that uh, the conservatives, the PC party, has shown. And as you know, you mentioned the jumping to your feet in a, and standing oaths. It was really interesting. Uh, to watch the House yesterday, and of course, every time you know the the, the a minister stood up, the I don't believe the premier wasn't in the House yesterday, but every time somebody stands stands up uh, on the government bench, well, there's a giant standing oval. Well, Miss Samard, she kept her seat yesterday. Well, that tells you a lot. But that, but again, I've talked to other MPPs, though, Alan, from other political parties that have represented this area, and they've all expressed that same situation, too, that they're encouraged to bang on the desks and yell out things. And, and if you don't, they say, well, what's the problem here? Aren't you a team player? So, I mean, that that's really part of the game there. It is. And, you know, the, the standing O's, like, you remember remember a couple of months back, seems like forever ago, when we were all complaining about the staffers showing yeah, up yeah. And, and applauding uh, Doug Ford out of the room? Well, they decided that that probably wasn't the best idea, so they've turned it on the MPPs and made their MPPs now their their clapping, uh, cheering section. Uh, very quickly, uh, obviously, there's hardly anything to talk about at Queen's Park on Focus Ontario, but you'll you'll find something <laughs> for this week, won't you? Oh my god! You know, and that, I, here's a secret. I'll let you in on is Focus Ontario is pre-taped. Uh, it, we don't do it live on the weekend. Of course, so yeah. I'm actually taping it the, at twelve thirty today and hoping that, that Ms. Samar doesn't drop some other kind of bombshell <laughs> on Friday. But, of course, we'll have all the very almost latest, uh, plus a real look at, um, at the housing announcement, because it's sort of kind of under the radar. We have Steve Clark on the show this weekend talking about the changes to rent control. And, you know, we can talk all we want about French language services, but there's a whole lot more people in this province who are going to be impacted by the elimination of rent control. Yeah, well, we'll see. If Focus on Terror, of course, Saturday evening and then Sunday morning on Global TV. Alan, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Bill, I appreciate being on as always. Can I just stand and give you, uh, just, uh, I just want to do this here. There we go. There we go. There you go. You see, are you pounding on the desk? Good. Yes, I'm just <laughs> pounding on the There you go. Or on the dashboard, whatever. Thanks again, Alan. Alan Carter, co-host of Global News at 530 and 6, and of course the host of Focus Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Now, we mentioned that uh, yesterday Premier Doug Ford was in Grimsby to make the announcement about the funding for West Lincoln Memorial Hospital. We just uh, heard from Dr. Gary Benson from the hospital a little while ago. They're obviously ecstatic about that. But there was a Q&A with some media members uh, after the announcement, and uh, one of the questions uh, that was raised had to do with Hamilton's LRT. I mean, why not, right? Uh, when uh, the new council was elected and gets sworn in on Monday, one of the first things that they have to do at some point here is talk about light rail transit and their commitment to it. Now, I know the council's already committed to it, but during the election campaign, we heard from some candidates and from some councillors, all of whom got reelected, by the way, that, well, there's some concerns about the funding, and especially, I guess, the, the wild card was uh, a pronouncement made by Ford during the campaign that, look, at if you don't want LRT, you can still have the money for something else. So they're suggesting that there still has to be a debate about this. Well, yesterday when asked about LRT, the premier simply said, look, at uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger got reelected uh, in a democratic process by a wide margin, and if he wants LRT, then we'll give him LRT. Is that enough? to stall the debate or end the debate about this in the city. I want to bring Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer, into the conversation. Ryan, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. Uh, I'm hoping uh, against hope, I guess, that uh, that we can put this thing behind us. There's always somebody pushing it again saying, well, we're not sure. You know, we, Maybe council has to have an up-and-down vote. Uh, are you satisfied, I mean, with what uh, the premier said yesterday, that this, this issue is settled? Well, it's certainly encouraging. I mean, it's it's nice to see that the uh, the premier is is kind of standing by his word in terms of what he said before the election. You know, the um, the the anti LRT uh, organization, I guess, the, the, you know, the the politicians and the people who are against it uh, insisted on making this election into a referendum on LRT. You know, every other issue that we probably needed to be talking about was pushed off to the margins, and instead, this became you know, if you support LRT, you vote for Fred, and if you oppose LRT, vote for the other guy. Uh, and Fred was re-elected with a commanding majority, 54% of the vote. He won 13 out of 15 wards across the city, so it wasn't just concentrated in one area. He won 189 out of 220 polls. I mean, this was a sweep. He won the entire city. And uh, and so when I hear the, uh, the premier say, look, you guys had an election about LRT. The guy who supports LRT won. That's good enough for me. I mean, I hope that is. It should be. It certainly should be. This shouldn't have been an issue even in this election. The issue was already settled back in 2015 and again in 2016 and again in 2017. So we can keep stalling and delaying and introducing more and more uncertainty until, you know, the end of time, or we can get on with this thing and finish building it and then focus on other things that we need to be focusing our energy on. But you, you've heard the rumors, and, and frankly, some of them are very blatant about it, Ryan. They said, uh, these people on council that are saying, well, I still think we need to have an up-and-down vote uh, to add clarity. And, and, and the skeptics are saying, and we want a written letter from the premier that the funding is going to be there. I, I don't know if, if that's ever going to happen. As a matter of fact, I don't remember it ever happening politically. But, you know, he's, he's reiterated this every time he's been asked the question. I don't know what else people are looking for. Here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, there's there's a, there's a certain sense of, of sour grapes and of not engaging in good faith. You know, you had some people who uh, decided to kind of uh, pitch their tent on the no LRT side, and uh, you know, in terms of council, my read of the council is most councillors either fully support LRT or kind of have conditional support. You know, and there's a small number who are adamantly anti-LRT, and there's a few who have flip-flopped multiple times in the past and will probably flip-flop multiple times in the future. Um, as far as I'm concerned, this issue just needs to move forward, and if an up-and-down vote is the way to do that, 
uh, you know, I'm not a, a political insider. I don't know what that vote is going to look like. You know, and I hope that uh, that Mayor Fred, Mayor Elect Fred, is, uh, you know, sitting down individually with his colleagues to get a sense of how they feel about it. You know, I've heard from some councillors that they don't want to have another vote. They don't want to open up, you know, the can of worms. They don't want to tear off the bandage again. Maybe the best thing to do is just to let the process move forward. Um, you know, probably that conversation between the mayor and the premier has to happen. And the mayor certainly has to have the conversations with his colleagues in order to figure out what is the most effective way to move forward with this. Well, and there's a, there's an educational component to this. I mean, I talked to Esther Pauls on election night, the, the new council for Ward 7, of course, uh, and and she says, well, she's on the fence. Uh, she's right now. She's not in favor of it, but you know, she says she could be convinced. So there's, there's still going to have to be some some education and some information out there because an awful lot of the I, I think the angst we felt over the last number of years about this is based on misinformation. That and, and it's maybe the most important part and the one that seems to be hanging over everybody's head, Ryan, is there's still some people that have this impression that there's a check for a billion dollars floating around out there that we can do whatever we want for, and that's not how governments finance projects. You know, and it's certainly not how the government has financed this project. You know, this this project is not being uh, debt or deficit financed by the government. In fact, the procurement model is that the consortium uh, that is selected to design, build, and operate the system is also going to be financing the construction of that system. And so, essentially, it's 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 a thirty year agreement where we're going to be paying the consortium uh, essentially out of, of revenue from the system. Uh, so the the um, you know there's not going to be a hit to the government's books, which is probably a good thing because uh, this provincial government is you know certainly looking at uh, very aggressively at ways to trim the provincial budget. So this is a way of financing a project that doesn't show up on the budget in a negative way. And and people have to understand that. I mean, can, or is this going to be on the chopping block? And and I can understand some of the concerns based on some of the policy announcements that uh, the Ford administration has made over the last few months. But uh, there's there's no saving for them to say, okay, we're not going to finance LRT because technically it's not them that's financing. It's debt. It's the same as you buy a house. Nobody, you know, gives you five hundred thousand dollars for a house. It's debt financing, and that's how this is going to work. Sure. Yeah. And in fact, the, there's even a, an additional layer of remove because it's going to be the consortium that's yeah. going to be doing the financing. You know, so we're essentially contracting out the financing of this project. And, and I guess part of the frustration here is this is all old news. I mean, that information is out there. I just People either choose not to hear it or they don't seem to understand it. Well, in, in fairness, uh, I think the city and the province could have been doing a much better job of explaining and defending this project. Agreed. Over the past several years. And there's been a number of reasons for that. The province has not wanted to wade into what they perceive to be sort of a local political controversy, uh, in the city, I've, I've had certain frustrations with uh, staff who have been afraid of putting out just factual information because they're afraid of it being seen as political. This whole issue has been so politicized that we haven't been able to have a good evidence-based, fact-based argument around it. And so the no LRT group has seized on the opportunity to spread as much fear and misinformation and confusion about this project as possible. And so people who are advocating for this project, in some ways, we're fighting with one hand tied behind our backs because we're actually committed to telling people what's correct. Well, the the, the problem, is, as I talked to some of the elected officials here that, are, that were supportive of the project, is is you're right. They kept looking to the to Metrolinx and to the provincial government of the time 
and simply said, hey, have you got our backs? And, and they usually just step back and say, look, we're not going to get involved in that. And it left really up to the local people here to, to fight those battles. And, and it could have been much easier if you simply if the province and Metrolinx had said, look, we're committed to this thing, guys. Uh, you know, it, it took them long enough to actually, let's face it, to announce the funding for this thing. I mean, we didn't know that was coming until the premier showed up at Raster one day. That was in doubt for the longest time. Sure. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, it, certainly the, the, the province, um, you know, over the years, um, there, there have been some missed opportunities for them to, to lead in terms of communicating this. But I, I think we really have to look closer to home. I mean, if you look at, at um, uh, Waterloo Region and their LRT project, in a lot of ways it's similar to ours, except in theirs, the uh, local taxpayer is picking up about 30% of the total cost, uh, and they're going to own and operate the system at the end of it. You know, whereas with ours, it's a fully provincial project. But if you look at the communication that Waterloo Region has done on that project, it has been exemplary. They've done a really, really good job of making sure that they bring the public um, to a level where they really understand the benefit of this. They understand why it has to move forward. We just haven't done as good a job here in Hamilton. So it's, it's encouraging that uh, Mayor Eisenberger was reelected with a commanding majority. Um, that shows, you know, I mean depending on how you want to parse that result, either that a majority of Hamiltonians who voted support LRT or that they don't see it as an important enough issue to vote against them. You know, there's a lot of different ways of looking at that. But, I mean, I see that as a clear political and very recent endorsement. You know, we've had now three elections in a row where LRT has been the issue. And in all three cases, the pro-LRT candidates have won. It's time to put this thing to bed. Well, there's another element to this, and, and there's a reality, I think, that we have to come to grips with here, is there's never going to be unanimity in this. I mean, in any major spending project, at any level, in any city, n- you're never going to get a scenario where everybody is on side with it. I mean, smaller issues, yes, but I, I, I mean, I don't want to bring up the expressway again, but I mean, this went on for over 40 years. And and the people that were opposed to it stayed opposed to it. The people that were in favor of it stayed in favor of it. And so you weren't really changing anybody's mind by reiterating the same points, and we seem to be falling into the same trap with LRT. Well, sure. And if you look at the 2003 election where Mary Diani ran on uh, pro-Red Hill and won, he won with 51% of the vote. Uh, so Fred has actually won with a slightly larger mandate than Larry Diani won on the election that decided the Red Hill issue. So in, in, in terms of, of looking at the parallels there, this is a very straightforward case. The LRT candidate won. Not everyone's going to agree with it, although as the thing gets built and put into operation, more and more people will, will see and appreciate how well it works, and it's going to be a matter of time before we're asking for it to be extended. But for now, this is as strong a mandate as you're going to get on a contentious issue. And on a political level, I have no expectation at all that it's going to be a unanimous vote at city council. There are going to be people that are opposed to it. And, and fine, vote that way if that's the, the way you want to be. But let's just move on instead of trying to throw roadblocks in the way. Exactly. I mean, it got to the point, to, again, to use the example of the expressway, I, I was on council when that finally got okayed. Uh, the, 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 the Red Hill, not the, the link that was already built by then. But the reality was there were two or three people that were adamantly opposed to it, and they just, any time it came up, they just said, just record me as opposed. No debate, no discussion. It's over. It's done. And I, I'd like to see this new council take that attitude with LRT. You mean rather than boiling the ocean in these 12-hour epic meetings? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, well, you're, that's you're absolutely right. That, you know, I understand this method of that madness. I've, I've just did the analysis on this. Uh, all the people in the in the audience, of course, would have to keep running out and putting money in the meter. It's a revenue generator for the city. That's why the councillors do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't even necessarily disbelieve you in that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it really, it, it, uh, it, it turns uh, democratic decision-making into a kind of theater. And, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, we, we elect councillors, we pay councillors um, to become educated, to become informed, to consult fairly and meaningfully and in good faith with their constituents. And at the end of the day, to make a decision that they believe is truly best for the city. You know, and that means setting aside the grandstanding, setting aside the posturing, setting aside the virtue signaling and the dog whistling and all the kind of nonsense that, that fills up the airwaves. And ultimately thinking, you know, what is going to be the right thing? If looking back 25 or 50 years from now, you know, I want to be remembered as a person who put a stop to what could have been a transformative change for the city. I hope, uh, you know, and I trust that most councillors most of the time are in it because they really want to make a positive difference. And this is a really exciting chance for them to do that. Well, and there were too, too many opportunities lost in the past by past councillors that, that had visionary opportunities and, and didn't see that vision, and, uh, and it passed us by, and we don't want to happen, let that happen again. I mean, I, I'd like to think we're better than that now. Well, we've been planning uh, rapid transit along this LRT corridor since 1960. Um, so that's actually, we, we're already longer than the time from when Red Hill was first planned until it was finally built. So by, by, by the Red Hill timeline, we're ready to go. And, and let's be clear, I, I doubt very much there's ever going to be a written letter from the Premier about that. Premiers don't do that. Prime Ministers don't do that. But there is a commitment for, for the finances, and, and we heard again another one. So uh, I, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm, I'm interested to see just how this is going to roll out. I mean, they all, they, the new council gets sworn in on Monday. I'm sure they'll start meeting shortly after that, and this is going to come up. And I'd like to think that in the time since the election, uh, Ryan, today, that these newly elected councillors, especially the newbies on council, have done their research and done their homework on this and, and have an informed decision by the time they sit down around the council table. I certainly hope so. Or, or you know, and, uh, and you know, from, from, from my kind of, um, I've had a few interactions with a few of the new councillors, and they, they strike me as people who uh, are earnest and sincere and really want to make the right decision, you know, and, and that's, that makes me hopeful. Well, we'll see how, how it rolls out starting on Monday, I guess, when they get rolled in. Thanks, as always, Ryan. Appreciate that. And uh, we'll uh, keep an eye on this thing, hopefully get this thing moving and get some shovels in the ground in the next little while. Right. I look forward to our conversation where we talk about how great it is that it's happening. And uh, for the ribbon cutting. <laughs> Thanks again. Ryan <laughs> McGreal, of course, editor of Raise the Hammer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we heard from a local uh, criminal lawyer, uh, uh, about uh, their the concerns about a bill that's actually stuck in the Senate right now. Jeff Manishman was talking to us about uh, some of the uh, concerns within the legal community. Uh, we can only speculate why the senators uh, in Ottawa are holding this thing up. It's uh, uh, an interesting bill. It's Bill 337. Uh, and essentially what this does is uh, it's mandating sexual assault training for incoming judges. The original sponsor of the bill, Ronna Ambrose, was at the time, of course, the interim leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. She's uh, since left uh, politics, but is still advocating for this, and I'm sure is rather upset that uh, the Senate seems to be dragging their heels on that. So we are pleased to welcome Ronna Ambrose to the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Ronna, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, I, I blogged about this back when you introduced the bill because I thought there was a great deal of validity to this, and uh, it actually went through the House of Commons at a pretty quick pace, didn't it? It did. I mean, it, it did go to committee, and it was studied by all parties. We there were some an amendments, some amendments made, but you know, some members 
on the other side, I can say, you know, there was liberal members who said to me they've never worked on a bill where there was so much collaboration, so much goodwill. The prime minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, supported it vocally, continues to support it vocally. Um, Minister of Justice, everybody came together to find a way to get to yes. Well, um, it got stuck. It got stuck in the Senate, to be frank, because of politics. There's a lot of senators that do support this bill. It's now at committee, and the hope is that there will be soon. There will be time for those senators to study the bill. There are some senators. Don't get me wrong, that are opposed to the bill, and would like to hold it up and see it never pass. But there's many, many that support it. So I'm optimistic. Well, we're told that the Senate is supposed to be sober second thought, but this is taking just a little bit too long. It's been almost two years. It's a lot of a lot of thinking, a lot of a lot of sober second thought <laughs> <laughs> on an issue that I think you know we you know we in the in the House of Commons felt really strongly that it needed to be studied, it needed to be thought very clearly through, and the Minister of Justice, um, you know, consulted with a lot of people. I consulted with a lot of people to make sure that we respected the independence of the judicial judici- the judiciary, um, and came to a bill that we really believed would do what needs to be done, which is to make sure that when a rape victim enters a courtroom, um, he or she knows that the judge presiding over his or her case actually knows sexual assault law. And right now in this country, that is not guaranteed. Well, and we've been outraged, I think, as, as a community uh, by some of the things that have been said. I mean, the, the, obviously, the famous course in, case in Alberta, of course, of the uh, why didn't you keep your legs closed, Judge? Uh, and we know there was retribution on that. But I, I know you've heard the pushback on this. And uh, when we got opinions on, on the bill as it was going through the Commons, I heard this as well, that look, at the, the, the Parliament has no business trying to tell judges how to be trained, etc. That's the judiciary. It should be separate and apart. Uh, but yep. but please tell us how you responded to that, because this is a valid argument against that line of thinking. Yeah, and, and that's exactly why we crafted the bill with the way we did. So we weren't telling judges what to do. We were telling lawyers what they have to do to become a judge. So basically, there, there's an act in Parliament. It's called the Judges Act. Um, and, but what it does is set out the eligibility criteria with which the uh, Privy Council or the, the Governing Council uses to appoint judges. And it has things in it like you have to be uh, someone in good standing in the legal society. You have to have been a judge for, you know, so many years, that kind of stuff. What we added to that and what this bill basically adds to that is say you have to have taken comprehensive sexual assault law training. So my argument to lawyers who say, you know, I don't want to take the time to do this if I want to become a lawyer is why? You know, they already take all kinds of extra training. And the interesting thing is, when I do talk to law firms across the country, they're not the issue. They say, yeah, we take ongoing education all the time. And if I want to be appointed to the bench, and this is one of the eligibility criteria that I've got to undergo, I'll take the training, no problem. And, you know, I I had one lawyer say to me, yeah, but why do I need to take it? Because I want to be appointed to the tax court, and I'm never going to be you know, I'm never going to have to deal with a sexual assault case. And I said to them, you know what, maybe it'll make you a better human being. Think of it from that point of view. I mean, these are very complex issues uh, to deal with, very complex cases. And we have learned over the last number of decades so much new research around how they are dealt with in the courtroom, you know, language that's used, stereotypes that, that are, you know, people don't realize the unconscious bias they have and the kinds of things they say that can really be a de- have detrimental impact on an alleged victim. Uh, and, you know, people say, oh, but this will tip the balance in favor of the alleged victim or the complainant. 
you know, Kim Campbell, who, you know, is just a phenomenal woman in the area of, of this issue, of course, she's the one that brought in the sexual assault law, mm-hmm. the no means no law back in the 80s. You know, she's an advocate of this. And she said, you know, first of all, since when is more education a bad thing? But second of all, she said, if you don't actually know sexual assault law, how can you and, and apply it properly? How can you be a judge overseeing a case like this and expect fairness in the courtroom? You know, and, and, and so it's, the whole point is these are complicated, very difficult cases, much more than many other cases that a judge will ever preside over. So just, you know, on that basis, we want to see the judges um, having this kind of education just in the basic law, no matter then having education around the stereotypes, which would address things like, why did you wear that short skirt? You know, you know, were you kind of asking for it? Yeah, what do you think you was going to happen when you went to that bar? Yeah, that sort right, of stuff. Why, why did you flirt so much with them? Maybe you shouldn't have that second drink. You know, why didn't you keep your legs closed? You know, all those things you hear, those things come out of unconscious biases that some people have. And one of the things that's wonderful about this train, the kind of training is that it makes people think, you know, oh, yeah, actually what she wore has nothing to do with being sexually assaulted. You know, this is a crime. Uh, and, you know, what she said shouldn't have something to do with it. And, yeah, maybe they were flirting, but that doesn't mean he gets to uh, rape her. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's not just knowing the actual law, so you apply it appropriately in the courtroom, but then also managing your courtroom in a way to make sure that those kind of stereotypes don't emerge and, uh, you know, become prejudicial. So that's what this is about. Um, There are very, I believe there's very few people that are against this, um, but they are, are, they're out there. um, And it's just people that just don't, I think, just feel like they don't want things to change and they want things to be the way they are. And I think we've learned so much about these kind of cases over the last few decades. And I just look even in the corporate sector, right? I mean, I'm in the private sector now. Mm -hmm. Everywhere I go, people are being trained around sexual harassment, language, behavior, um, you know, how to conduct themselves, you know, and, and, and whether it's all this diversity training, everyone's trying to deal with these kinds of issues. Now, let's take this to a whole other level, which is criminal. Why can't we expect our judges and the lawyers who want to become judges to preside over these cases to have this training, not just the training around the sensitivities of these issues and the mythologies and stereotypes, but actually know the law, the actual law. I mean, how can they not um, when they're presiding over these cases? So it's... It's still surprising and shocking to me that we have judges presiding over sexual assault cases that have never taken any training in sexual assault law. It's probably even more important than even it was when it passed through the, the, the parliament a couple of years ago, because we've learned more, haven't we, in the, in the last couple of years? I mean, they, I, I'm sure you saw this uh, survey that was released a couple of weeks ago. We talked about it here on the program. That the, we, we know that the overwhelming majority of victims of sexual assault do not report it. They don't go down that road. They don't. And the reason they don't, they don't. is because those that have, uh, have are very concerned about an attitudinal problem. From the time they actually report it to the authorities to the time they may actually get to the courtroom, they feel as if people are, and everybody is against them, the way that they're questioned, the way that they're investigated, uh, and the way that they're, they're talked to in that environment. And we need to do something about that environment then. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. And training is a great way to start training and education. And we saw, you know, the Globe and Mail did these great pieces. And I know that's what you're talking about, these unfounded cases. Yeah. Where we found hundreds, thousands of women who had gone, gone in to report sexual assault and they were treated so dismissively that they just went home. So let's, you know, let's put that number aside, which is massive. Then you've got one in 10 women who say that they actually will report. Um, victim services groups now get to the point where they feel like they don't even recommend to the victim to go forward because it's so, you know, it's so difficult and they feel re-victimized and they don't feel there's any sense of justice. Uh, and so, you know, I talk to victim services people and even Crown prosecutors that say, I'm at a point now where I don't necessarily recommend to some rape victims to go through our system. And so to me, that's a massive lack of confidence in our system. So how do we regain confidence or how do we build confidence? We build confidence by showing people that those who are in charge of our institutions are willing to learn and they're willing to take training and make sure that they have the proper um, uh, you know, not only legal cha- training, but some of this, um, these, these training around stereotypes. Well, be- because there are biases, and I understand that people may bristle when you start making that kind of an accusation. Uh, it's not to suggest that everybody in the system has, has misogynist attitudes, but they oh, could, no, th- there all. could be latent biases. And, and as you say, we are products of our environment, and if there was a bias there, you, if you, if lack of knowledge is, is actually what perpetuates this whole situation. And, and I think what the bill is doing here basically is saying, okay, let's make it mandatory so that at least you are aware you know what the law is, and I'd, I'd like to yeah. see it. I'd like to see it expanded, right, beyond uh, the courtroom, and, and, and just about everybody who's involved in sexual assault cases. Well, you know, it's funny because when I put this forward, that's exactly what happened. I had I had um, crown prosecutors uh, contact me and say, "Can we include crown, crown prosecutors in that? Can we include defense lawyers? Can we include?" <laughs> and we can't. But I said, "Well, you know, let's you know let's advocate for that too." I mean, there's 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 other even the frontline police officers are now undergoing some training because of that big expose that the Globe and Mail did around unfounded cases. So everybody, you're exactly right. It's throughout the whole system. And when you think about the trauma that sexual assault victims, whether they're children, you know, men, women, boys, girls, uh, you know, it affects them for the rest of their lives. The sooner that we can get to these kinds of cases into the system, the better we can help people get through them and get past their trauma. Well, I mean, I've talked to victims. We, we've talked to the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton, and, and, and you're right. They do not, at, at this point, uh, recommend that people go forward unless they really feel confident that they want to because they're concerned about what may happen to them. But even some of the victims, and it was referred in the, in the Globe and Mail article, as you know, uh, said that, look, when, when police da- actually did talk to them, they did not interview them. They interrogated them. And, and right off the bat, yeah. that, that tells you the attitude. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of people are, you know, are told just, you know, you might not want to do this because you're going to go through hell. Uh, you're really going to go through hell. And so victims sort of think, well, what's the point? I might as well go and try and work it out on my own. But that's crazy. I mean, you would never do that with an, a, another crime. You know, if you were, your house, you know, car was stolen, your house was broken into, you'd never think that. You'd think, okay, I'm going to go to the police and write a, you know, get a report written up and see where it goes from there. Um, but at, on top of that, of course, those aren't, you know, these crimes in particular are highly complex, much more complicated than those, um, and involve all kinds of issues. And so all the more reason why the judges that oversee them should be, uh, you know, should be educated in the actual law 
I mean, the fact that they don't even have training in sexual assault, we have some judges that are corporate lawyers, you know, former corporate lawyers. That's their area of expertise, and they're sitting there overseeing, uh, overseeing uh, cases for sexual assault law. I just don't think that's acceptable. So we're not, we aren't focusing on the judges because, as you said, it's an issue of judicial independence. We're focusing on the lawyers. So what we're saying in the bill is if you're a lawyer and you want to be eligible to uh, be appointed to the bench, you need to take the course. And the courses are available. They're available. The legal societies have them available all across the country. And so take it and you're good to go. Uh, so I don't see why, you know, I really don't see the controversy here. Um, and it, I'm in PEI today, and they. Have I was going to ask you about that. I, mean, I don't yeah. want. I don't want to give our listeners the impression that that this this is not getting much support. I mean, uh, that you, there's a chance here the provincial legislation in PEI is going to pass a similar bill. Yeah, So they've introduced one called Bill 110. It does basically the same thing. It actually goes a little bit farther than mine, from what I can see. And they'll be the first province in the country to do this, and hopefully create momentum across the country. You know, I've spoken with Caroline Mulroney. She's interested in seeing what they can do. Laurie Scott uh, in the Ontario legislature introduced something. It's stalled right now, but I've talked to Caroline to see what we can do to make sure, you know, is there amendments that need to be made? And so I'm going to be talking to her about that in Ontario. Uh, I've talked to premiers across the country, justice ministers. um, But I think we all need to get past this idea that judges are untouchable. Um, And we need to create confidence in all of our institutions, including the judiciary. And so I understand that Parliament and legislatures cannot tell judges what to do. So let's take a step back before that, and let's make sure the lawyers that become those judges are trained. And so that way we we respect the independence of the judiciary, (laughs) but we also make sure we're creating that next group of people that are going to make sure that they've got uh, the right training. In addition... I, you know, there are, there are courses now available, um, thanks to the pressure we've put on this issue, available to sitting judges. Now, they're not mandatory, and we'll never know, we're not allowed to know if a judge has taken the course on sexual assault law, but it's available to them. But again, they, they live in a world that is different, and we don't have that transparency. So it's available to them now, and I thank the Judicial Council for doing that but we're not allowed to ask if they've taken it. And we don't, we'll never know who did and who didn't. Um, so a little bit of progress made in terms of sitting judges, but like to know that in the future, every judge that sits on that bench will have that training. So that's why we're targeting the lawyers before they get there. Senator Serge Joel is the uh, chair of the committee. Have you had any indication at all from the senator as to when they're going to actually get started to, to, to do something about this? No, I haven't, but Senator Boisvenu, um, who is the co-chair of that committee, um, he's actually very involved in victims' issues. Um, his daughter was actually a murdered victim, and he's very involved in, murder vic- in, in victims' issues. He has said, told me that he's going to push to get the bill to come forward to committee. Denise Batters has said the same thing. She sits on, that, on the Legal Affairs Committee. Um, I, I know that Sir Joyal has been opposed to the bill, uh, he says he's willing to be uh, open-minded, so I'm thanking him for that. And I say, let's get it to committee so we can at least have experts come in and, and answer all the questions that you might have. Because um, we did that in the House of Commons as well. And, and if we need to do something to get to a yes, let's work together to do that. Uh, so I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, and I'm just going to keep advocating. 
Well, a lot of people in the Hamilton community are very interested in this and following this story and, and, and hopeful that the, the Senate is going to see the, the, the light of day on this one and do something about this. Ronna, thank you for the great thank work that you. you've done on this with the bill, uh, for your thank persistence you for your on this interest. as well. Well, it's it's the right thing to do. <laughs> it's the right thing to We're do. We're not going to stop. Thanks again, okay, Ronna. Take care. Bye-bye okay, now. Bye-bye. Ronna Ambrose, of course, a former leader of the uh, Conservative Party who's pushing this bill. And we've had both sides of the debate, of course, here on the program over the last little while. But as you heard her explanation uh, and, and put that into context, uh, it makes all kinds of sense. It's happening at the corporate level. And, and she's absolutely right. We've heard more and more corporations that are doing this kind of training and, and educating people about sexual assault. And uh, it's a box they should probably check off in, in the legal community as well. We'll see what the senators do. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.